Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Susan. I'm Andrew. So you would notice that is not Sam. Uh, Sam is out this month uh, working on a deadline right now, and we had already invited uh, my friend Andrew Berman to join us this month. And uh, with that, we have a sponsor, which is Andrew's company, Spectrum Printing and Graphics. So he's going to give a little 30-second plug about his company. We are a commercial printer located in Rockville, Maryland, and our goal is to take over the podcast world. Um, (laughs) And so this is where we're starting. We don't know where it's going to lead. Waiting for Malcolm Gladwell and Freakonomics to give me a call. Um, Oh, that's my phone ringing right now. (laughs) Um, We've been friends and doing work with News Generation for many, many years. So excited to be here. And how can people get in touch with you? Well, you can find us 24 hours a day anywhere in the world at www.spectrumprinting.com or you can just give us a call, 301-762-6900. Awesome. Great. So uh, Andrew and I have been friends for about 18, 19 years and we met through a networking group uh, that um, was Montgomery County Small Business Owners and kept in touch after that. We have a very fun lunch about every other month. We talk politics, we talk family, uh, and Andrew is a small business owner. So we thought it would be great to have him as a guest on our podcast. So here he is. And uh, we're going to kick off and talk a little bit about something that Sam posted right around New Year's. Um, And it was our first topic of discussion when Sam was going to be included. Uh, She has a lot of opinions on that, which she will let us know. Uh, But I thought I would just read the post and then we can talk a little bit about it. So it says, my sincere empathy to the hundreds of thousands of federal employees who are working without pay or out of work at the moment. Uh, To you, I say persevere. Things will turn around. I also express my sincerest empathy to the approximately 22 million Americans who have been underemployed, working part-time, not working in their field, or working in jobs that are grossly, they are grossly overqualified for, for many years, and the 11 million who are underpaid. All generations of workers are affected, and it's a pox in our economy. If you are an employer, what will you do in 2019 to help turn this around? So I will open it up to you, Andrew Berman, to provide the first comment on that. I First of all, I completely concur, and I, I think any of us um, who are trying to make payroll and you know keep happy employees um, feel some of that. Um, I think that one of the things that's happened is the Facebook effect or whatever you want to call it, that at any given time, you know, you can look on LinkedIn, you can look at any social media, you look at commercials, and everyone's happy, and everything's going great, and... Um, it's tough because um, we want to be competitive with other companies and we want to, um, of course, uh, attract the best employees and, and keep them satisfied. But it seems like things are going so great other places. And it seems like everybody is getting stock options and, you know, 401k and so on. And um, I, I think sometimes it's hard to get a really accurate uh, perspective. Um, and, uh, you know, you hear about the low unemployment rates and so on. And I don't know that that accurately reflects, you know, middle-class wages and, and, um, you know, you hear about consumer confidence and stuff, but I, I, I don't actually know that that translates, um, on a regular basis to what small business is experiencing. 
I mean, I, I really believe that that's a good snapshot of big business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whether, you know, people who are primarily dealing with small to mid-sized businesses are benefiting from some of those economic indicators that you hear about, um, I, I don't know is as accurate as, you know, if interest rates go up and you have some loans, if, um, you know, if the wage market um, is kind of suppressed in a given industry, if it's hard to get good talent because the unemployment rate's relatively low, mm-hmm. um, I, I just don't know that that's discussed as much. So I, I think that she's really accurate. I think she's accurate. But what about uh, some of the pains that you saw during the government shutdown, which are not reported? I, I think that anyone who um, certainly lives in our area can empathize with the fact that 800,000 or whatever the accurate number was, um, hardworking people were furloughed. Um, and, I, and I think everyone can understand, um, you know, if you have rent, mortgage, car payment, whatever, that that's tough. Um, what I think was vastly underreported by the media is that all of those people were going to be paid in arrears. I know that that wasn't approved right off the bat, but Mm -hmm. that's what always happens. And I'm not minimizing that that's still stressful, but it seemed to me that the vast majority of um, mortgage companies, car companies, and so on made it clear if you're affected by this, please get in touch. And, and, and those companies, maybe it was from PR, maybe it was from empathy, but wanted to help. Um, And I think almost all of them um, would have let you go another 30 days or something, and then the employees got paid in arrears. Tough situation, but nonetheless, um, I guess they were they were made hold eventually. The, the trickle effect of all of that business being lost um, is not made up. So I know that in our industry, there was a number of conferences and seminars and mm-hmm. meetings that just got scuttled, and they will never be remade. Um, and so... My assumption is the restaurants and the dry cleaners and the cleaning agencies and stuff that had to let people go or lay them off. Um, that's great when things started back up again, but there's no paycheck in arrears for that. And I, I just felt like that was sort of underreported, not, not that there should be less empathy for the government um, employees, but for all of those people that make a living from those people just going to work from the, the products and the the services I guess they produce and the corollary effects of that um, in our area, especially, but you know, anywhere that they happen to work mm-hmm. or the, the, the um, resulting product. I mean, we had a number of companies that are either government contractors or rely on different departments of the government to produce a report or a conference or something that really had nothing to do with those people that were laid off directly. But that conference had to be, postponed and or canceled mm-hmm. or it became an online training seminar or something like that. So I, I just think more attention probably should have been paid to the, the damage that did across huge swaths of the economy. Um, and, and not necessarily less to those employees, but mm-hmm. you know, the holistic impact that had really for everybody. Right. So what do you think in terms of outside of this issue of the, the government shutdown, about some of the concerns for being a small business owner and some of the things that you would love to tell people uh, from a small business owner perspective about that, you know, it's not always so easy. Like, what are some of the challenges that you are working with? Uh, one of the things that I, I get a huge chuckle over is um, when people say it must be great being the boss. And you know, you can do whatever you want. And that's 100% true as long as you like to work a lot and get paid last. <laughs> but if that's your goal, you can have all you want of that. It's a buffet. Um, 
I think one of the things that um, one of the challenges that I see and and the intensive news coverage and certainly the um, the attention this administration has drawn is most of the conversation about the business climate if you really peel it back is big business right um, and so when they talk about the tariffs and long-range forecasting and jobs and so on um, I, I don't I don't know that there's much attention paid to the fact that for most of us smaller businesses, we we don't need great times. And when, of course, we're scared of bad times, but we need some predictability and we need some consistency. And then we can adapt. I mean, you're in you're in business um, still because you've adapted. I mean, things change, but you kind of need to be able to project a little bit um, and uh I, I don't know that we've been able to rely on that um, as much as in the past. Part of it's the pace of technology, and I know the world is changing. Um, but I think, like in our small world, uh, an example is we uh, some of these tariffs, aluminum tariff, for example, has affected us um, greatly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use a product, these aluminum printing plates. Most people don't um, know about that. And the only... Um, the only producer of the kind we need is in France. And so they're subject to this tariff and there's a stay and then it was in effect and now they're fighting over it. And I mean, it would, for our small business, it could be about a $20,000 difference on an annual basis for something that we can't pass the cost along. And so I I just don't know that enough attention is being paid to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, when you hear job numbers, I mean, of course that's really impactful to the economy. And when you hear, you know, interest rate and earning reports of these big companies. But, you know, for small companies, I think health insurance, you know, it's just a huge cost mm-hmm. um, for people our size. Um, you know, interest rates are are a pretty big deal if you're a capital intensive um, industry like we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some of the other things that just seem like they don't get the attention because um, we typically don't have lobbyists and we, you know, right. typically – you know, people don't leave the administration and then go into our industries and then go back. Right, you know. right, right. So, you know. so what about like that aluminum that you were talking about and that twenty thousand dollars squeeze that you can't pass along? So, what happens to that twenty thousand dollars? Where where do you pull that from, or where do you earn that from in order to cover that? Um, well, I think the unpredictability is a is a small, uh, but certainly. Um, consistent factor in all of this. So if we knew that that was absolutely going to happen and it happened completely across the industry, I think then we would have to bake that into our pricing and everyone would have to adjust because depending on what brand, and we're really getting into the weeds here, of these plates that you use and your whole system has to be set up for it, you can't really just switch. Some people have them made in Asia. Some people have ones that are, your ours are made by Heidelberg. They happen to be made in Europe. There's a, uh, a couple other brands um, that have um, production in Southeast Asia, um, and I believe there's one that has them in the United States. So if we if we knew that that was going to happen, I guess we'd adjust because it's been dangled, withdrawn. There's been a stay. You know, nobody really knows how to react. Um, but I, I mean, obviously the way the way it works, although I don't know that many small business employees get that, is if we cannot pass that cost along, then indirectly it comes from me. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. And so right, I think you hit it when you said, you know, there's no real lobby for a, 
you know, people are coming in and out of the administration and working at printing companies. And so I think that it, it is a challenge because there's no sort of collective voice that can be used. And so it's always interesting to hear different people's perspective on, on where that squeeze comes from. Like our squeeze is the cost of health insurance um, and insurance in general is, is super expensive. And, um, and then of course, taxes, that's uh, always a huge thing. So, um, it just, I think at some point it's just going to eliminate small business. I, um, I, I, I sadly tend to agree. I, I, and I think that that trend has accelerated, you know, with the, with the pace of technology, the internet and so on. And I don't mean to be a frightful person. I, I love being in business and I think it's exciting times, but you know, the, the ability to have um, the larger organizations speak with a much more powerful voice and to band together uh, in things like the Oil Petroleum mm-hmm. Institute or whatever it may be, where they have a singular lobbying effort versus, I mean, small business is so fragmented. We have some, like the cost of health insurance, some commonality, but for the most part, uh, my day-to-day business is completely different than yours and mm-hmm. most others, and we just don't have a strong lobbying effort. And so when you hear big pharma, the healthcare industry, energy, you know, and they can really ram um, that somehow what we're digging out of the ground is now clean coal, right? right. <laughs> you know, or, or whatever the message may be. We just don't seem to have that. And, um, you know, these, these companies... Uh, larger companies that seem to be able to roll up a lot of us smaller companies and then sort of consolidate them and speak right. with one voice makes it harder and harder if it's from lack of a buying power, if it's the ability to get a consistent message out, uh, you, you know, whatever it may be, it does make being a small business person, um, I think, more challenging today than ever before. Right. And I think part of it is these little you know, taxes and raise in healthcare rates. I mean, healthcare rates for small businesses are so much higher than they are per person for large business. Why? Because we don't have the power to fight it. We don't have the collective power. So if somebody is going up a, like against a huge company like Apple or Microsoft and saying, we're going to raise your insurance rates, they have people that do that full time that can fight that. Whereas we don't, it's like, oh, well, I guess I just have to work a little harder, charge a little more or pay myself a little less. And, and we just sort of accept it and then move on. But it, there comes a point where it just becomes cost prohibitive, where it's not, it's not worth it anymore. And so then that's when I think there's a lot of uh, mergers and, and acquisitions that are taking place because it's just not feasible anymore. I agree. I saw an article that I, I didn't double check, but it was about how Amazon paid almost nothing in taxes mm-hmm. last year, and they fought back that they pay a ton in local taxes and sales taxes. And it it just crossed my mind for a second that Spectrum Printing could pay more in taxes than Amazon. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm kind of guessing that they do a little bit more in gross revenue. Um, Probably like a hundred dollars more. <laughs> Exactly. He's like one of my kids. Yeah. Like a hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah. And it, so I, I think that, you know, you, you, you heard what we all did so much about the effective tax rate of these big companies yeah. and the lowering of the tax rate, but it was sort of a shell game, I think, because any of these multi-billion dollar multinational companies, I'm not saying they're not paying taxes, but they have an army of yes. tax accountants that are finding le- loopholes and deductions. And, 
you know, when you look at the effective tax rate of most of us small business people, I mean, you know, we'd sit down with our accountant a couple of times a year and, you know, we write off a couple of lunches and we pay our taxes. Right. Right. And it ends up being a huge percentage more than these huge companies um, and also dollar amount a lot more. Uh, you know, the effective rate of the tax cut that happened last year was the business is being taxed maybe a little bit less, but the person, the you know, the personal uh, taxes are going up. So it's a net zero effect or maybe paying a little bit more. And so I think that that is, you have to sort of look at the whole picture, like you're saying, where, yeah, if the tax rate goes from 37% to 28%, that sounds like a huge difference. But then when you're a, you're an LLC or an S corp, it doesn't matter because if you're personally being taxed a lot more, it's a wash. I, I think I completely agree. And I think Sam, to circle back to Sam's post, I mean, it's something I've thought about a lot over the last couple of elections. Um, and one of the rallying cries is job creator, job creator. I love that term. Um, I actually, uh, my wife was hassling me about doing something around the house, uh, years ago. And I remember after I heard Mitt Romney use that term for the first time, I said, you can't talk to me that way. I'm a job creator. <laughs> um, needless to say, I washed the dishes or took right. out the trash or whatever it was. But I, I think that that concept is, uh, both so noble and so flawed. I mean, that makes it sound like the goal of any business, small or large, is to try to hire more people. Yeah. And the truth is, I think all of us, especially small businesses, know that part, a, a huge part of our success is the caliber and quality of our people, which is based on like how hopefully we treat them and they in turn treat our customers. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a virtuous cycle. You know, I hope the happier employees are and the, and the more they like working there, the more it shows and, and so on. But I don't think that you could find anyone small or large size company that says, yeah, I would like to pay more people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, no yeah. one wants to say that, but that's not the goal. The goal is we want to increase revenue. We want happier customers and so on. And we want to do it the most efficient way possible the byproduct of growing, of course, is we may need more people, and that's great, and we want to get the best people we can, but I don't think anyone sets out to say, boy, I'd really like to pay more Social Security wages, and I'd like to pay more health insurance, yeah. and yep. I would really like more people. Um, and so I don't – to your to her point, really, it's tough because that's, that's really not our directive, and so I, I, I think we want to attract the best people, and we want to entice them with the best – HR and, and pay packages we can. And we want the people that are there to be happy. But I mean, you know, we really want to grow without adding whatever right. we can. Well, I think the thing is that when you are hiring people, you're making an investment the same way you would in any tool that helps you to get the job done. And so the outcome of that has to be greater than the input from the business. And I talk about this all the time. I, I will say it's, you know, I tell my students this, it's, it's almost like when you buy a printer, if you buy a printer and half the time it's not working, what are you going to do? You're going to return it or you're going to toss it. Right. And so you have to get out of it more than you're putting in. Am I the printer in this example? You are. <laughs> and it was interesting. Once the tax cut came out, was announced, uh, last year, um, I was talking with one of our employees and she said, now that there's been this big tax cut, how many more people are you going to hire? That was her. <laughs> and it was interesting because I thought, no, no, no. Um, because she wanted less work to do 
And um, I mean, in theory, like, I think that was the ultimate goal. Like, how can, how can you, you're going to be saving all of this great money. How can you make my life easier was basically the, the, the way I received the message. And I thought that's a really interesting, cause you're right. We're not striving to hire more people. We're striving to get more revenue that might lead to more people and make it a, a great investment in the future of the company. I, um, yes. And I think that it's an unfortunate byproduct really, if, if you will, I, I, I think like there, there's a big issue here and it's the minimum wage at $15 mm-hmm. an hour. And, and I, of course, can see both sides of that issue. But ultimately, what I think all of this will cause and what you're seeing in the economy as a whole is companies say, well, employees cost a lot of money and they get sick. And, you know, I mean, whatever, when you invest in a, in a piece of equipment, I guess, at least you can expect what the lifespan is and, you know, mm-hmm. you, can get, you know, and so you invest in an employee and they don't work out or they become less productive or eventually... Um, if you don't have somewhere to promote them, they Peter principal out or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. Um, and so you see more and more, um, retail companies. I mean, things you interact with, um, that either have, um, an app that you can order from or a touchscreen mm-hmm. kiosk or whatever. And there's a G whiz factor to that. And of course they're capturing some more data, but ultimately, uh, they're not paying a person. Right. 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 Um, and so. I think there's a good conversation to be had about, you know, what a living wage and what a human being's worth and, you know, the value of work, of course. But the the flip side is we end up pricing just the cost of labor out of the equation. And I'm not mm-hmm. smart enough and right. you know, that's that's above my pay grade, but I, I do have a lot of concern that if you can automate a lot of these entry level mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, jobs or some great part time jobs for students, people getting back in the workforce in the in the gig economy or so on, um, and they become more and more automated. I mean, you know, self-driving cars is right. probably one that's going to take a lot of jobs. Right. Um, I, I think there's a balance to that. And, and I think, you know, small business can't lead on that. Mm-hmm. Um, we can only follow, but the big companies that are, are driving more of that, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I'm concerned that the argument is to shame them. It's going to happen no matter what as opposed to sort of accepting that and adapting and having some retraining and 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 maybe trying to figure out really what the jobs of the future are as opposed to fighting battles that are right. really already lost. Right, right, right. Good point, good point. Okay, so let's move on and talk a little bit about our, um, you mentioned civil discourse. And so let's talk a little bit about that. We we Everybody's been talking about the Jesse Smollett uh, issue where he reported a crime that turned out... A, to not be true as of this point. And um, so you heard a, a great or read a great article uh, on this. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yep, absolutely. I, um, I, I am appalled on a personal level at how cantankerous and adversarial it seems like the political conversation and the camps people are dug into. It's just, it's sad to me because one of the, the great joys I have is I love talking to people that I disagree with on a civil level and kind of hearing where they're coming from and expressing my point of view and whether or not it changes anyone's opinion is almost irrelevant to me. It's just kind of interesting to agree to disagree and then move on and and, and remain friends. So uh, the piece I'd read was fascinating because it was sort of a different take um, and it was really about how much progress 
towards equality um, as a society we have made Mm -hmm. in, in a lot of different areas that something like that could end up inflaming people as much as it did. I understand people took sides. It turns out a lot of false statements were made and, and, and it was appalling if it turns out to be completely true that he made all that up for some self gain. But um, I mean, if you look in this country at just 50 years ago or 20 years ago or something, um, the fact that someone could report a hate crime like this and people would be so enraged that it's so offensive shows you that we've gotten to a place, while not perfect, is so much closer to where we would like to be that we all agree that something like that is wrong mm-hmm. and something needs to be done. I, I'm just assuming that 50 or 60 years ago, that would not have been right. the reaction. It wouldn't have bubbled to the top. <laughs> and part of it, I think, is social media, is that it Im- immediately got there on Twitter and people were talking about it and retweeting it. I actually read about it on Twitter. And um, I think that that it is amazing how quickly everybody came to his defense. But then it even flip-flops even worse when it turns out that it's false because there are two you know, great causes in terms of equality, well, race equality and sexual equality that I think sort of lost during this whole situation. The, the, the piece went on, and I, I, I'm, I'm just not knowledgeable enough about the kid from the Catholic school, I think, in Kentucky. Who, yeah, there was Covington. That, Covington, mm-hmm. yes, I couldn't think of it. That there was a picture, and we all read into what we, we wanted to project our feelings about that situation yes. with literally a snapshot in time and how there, there might have been a complete misreading of that as the facts untangle. Um, which in and of itself shows, you know, the power of social media and people are opinionated and we all have eight second attention spans and you go, I mean, I get that part and that's all true. But the, the underlying positive message was that we're at a place that, you know, between a kid, Native American, whatever it may be that you knew if that situation was what you perceived it to be for that split second, that that inherently was wrong. Right. Right. <laughs> right. When when I was a kid, um, dating myself a little, there was a great public service uh, ad that there was a Native American looking at a garbage strewn field and he had a tear. Right. And it completely played on stereotypes. And we thought that was a great commercial. Right. We like, did. <laughs> we did. Right. There's nothing that would run today. Right. Um, so it just shows you how far we've gone in, in trying to do the right thing. I mean, I think that commercial was well intended was don't litter. Of course. Right? Of course. And I, to go back to, uh, remember the Rodney King pulled out of the, his truck and beaten by police. Right. So I was in Philadelphia on a work trip one time and struck up a conversation at a happy hour with this woman who was on the jury for that. And she was talking about how grueling it was. She had death threats and this was in the mid nineties. So before all the social media stuff. And she said, Susan, if you had the privilege of looking at the 40 minutes of what happened before everything was shown on the news, now think about if there was social media around, how people would have jumped to conclusions so much more quickly than they did back in the mid-90s. She said, you would know why he was found guilty. You would totally understand that. But all they keep showing in the news is the dragging and the beating. And so it's all about context. It's 100% all about context. And I feel like... We're, we have eight section, second attention spans, like you just said, so that we jump to a conclusion. We're like, okay, we're, we're with him, we're with her, we're with him, we're with them, and that's it. And I, so I feel like we can sort of go through and figure out exactly where we are in certain issues without even knowing the context. 
I couldn't agree more. And I, I think that the polarization in politics, which is filtered down, is you're either in camp A or camp B. Right. And so it's terrifying to me that somehow your position on uh, whatever, abortion, guns, immigration, somehow has something to do with your position on the environment or you know, whatever. I mean, you know, you, you paint someone as uh, conservative or uh, liberal or whatever, and that means you have to feel the exact same way about a thousand different issues. Right. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's really. terrifying, right? And so I feel like we're all siloed off into these, okay, I'm with her, I'm with him, I'm not with her. And it's it's so um, transactional as opposed to really understanding. Like, I feel like before we were all staring at our phones, you know, back in the days when we were in college, you had to actually have conversations with people <laughs> and you had to learn about what you are old, all, right? I know. I mean, I was, I, we were talking, I was talking about this with a college friend the other day. I'm like, how did we ever figure out where to meet up? Because nobody had a phone to like text, like, Hey, I'm at odds. Like, come meet me. And so it's, it is kind of funny, but I feel like there's so much being lost and I love it when my boys are FaceTiming with their friends instead of just the texting, like they get a million texts, but when they actually have conversations and I hear them, saying please and thank you and like actually interacting, it makes me so happy. And it's something I never even thought I'd have to consider when it came to parenthood because I assumed that we wouldn't be this far along t- technology-wise. So it is um, it is interesting to – I feel like we're going to take a swing back where we have to get more in line, where, where we have deeper conversations with people and get to know what they're about instead of making these snap judgments. I, I- – I have a 17 year old daughter I was teasing last night I said why don't we play um like a throwback 1980s game I'm gonna now hold your phone and every one of your friends that gets in touch has to talk to me first yeah just like when they used to call my house I have a younger sister who talked on the phone all the time so you had to call and say hi Mrs. Berman how are you yes (laughs) I know I shouldn't be up so late (laughs) yes I've been brushing my teeth can I please talk to Kathy right so we'll just do that and I'll hold your phone and I'll be the gatekeeper right she looked at me like I had two heads right like dad that's so gross you're such an idiot yeah you would yeah. talk to my friends. Right. Isn't that funny? Yeah. It's I said maybe they shift. could put their parents on and we could right. just have a little parental right. chat. Right. You know what my brother does, which I think this is great. If his, he's got a senior in high school, he's a football player going to Rutgers next year. And whenever Logan goes out anywhere, he makes him take a picture with the parents at the kid's <laughs> house. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. So, of course, I'm like, Logan, just every time you go to a friend's house, whether, you know, like just take a picture with the parents and then you have one in the chamber so when my, you know, your dad asks you to text, you have a picture all ready to go. He's like, that's a great idea. And of course, my brother's all pissed at me. But <laughs> it's funny because like my mind goes to what can I do to get around this? But I think it's a great tactic. And it's a great way for Logan to have to interact with the parents no matter what. So it, it is an interesting statement of where we are today that that's a... Uh, a skill that needs to be nurtured right. is to just go talk to someone to look them in the face and look them in the eye. It's crazy. Um, so I know we have to wrap up soon. So let's, um, one thing I wanted to just talk about was I had the pleasure of seeing Daniel Pink speak a couple of weeks ago. He wrote the book when he wrote the book drive, which is one of my favorite books of all time. But when is a book about timing? Cause we always talk about what we have to do and sometimes why we have to do it, but we don't talk about when we do it and when the optimal time is to do it. So I suggest that we read that 
um, my friend Helen Mitternight, who's friends with Dan Opick, just did a um, podcast about it, which I will promote as a little shout out to her. And um, it's just all about timing and knowing when you're really good at doing things during the day versus when you should concede and do other things that aren't maybe as creative or as, um, you know, sort of meaningful. Uh, so you have to know when to turn on and when to turn off. So good food for thought. And, um, I know your parents are visiting this weekend, so (laughs) let's wrap up and talk a little bit about your parents who are just as funny as you are and, uh, (laughs) tell us why they're coming to town. Um, we have a lot going on this weekend. Haven't seen the grandkids in a while. So we have, uh, some, a very close friend who's turning 50, um, I'll give his code name. The pod is turning 50 this weekend and having a, yeah, it's his nickname and and is having a, a birthday party. Um, he and his partner are throwing it and my parents are completely out of their mind that they don't know how to dress for a 50 year old gay birthday bash (laughs) and don't know that they have the appropriate clothing. Um, hopefully my parents will hear that and maybe just stop nagging me about it. Yep. Uh, I'll be wearing my middle-aged guy clothes, uh-huh. and I told them to wear their grandparent clothes, and everything will be fine. Uh-huh. Um, and then Sunday night, we have this uh, legacy party. Um, uh, we'll give a little memorial to my mother-in-law. She was a movie buff and wrote, not text, not emailed, wrote out a multi-page letter to the Oscars years ago because she had read an article about being a seat filler and was given the opportunity. So for about seven years, I think. um, Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that. In the late 90s, she went to the Oscars, wore a gown, um, and when people didn't win, I guess they would get up and leave or the babysitter called and they would send her out and she sat in people's seats. And so she happened to have sat uh, next to Tom Hanks, two years in a row, he won back to back, and I wouldn't say they were friends, but you know he recognized like Philadelphia her. and Forrest Gump. Excellent. Okay, I'll go okay. with that. Good, good. <laughs> and she was British and had met Anthony Hopkins, and you know he thought she was entertaining for a split second and so on. So it was a really cool gig, and then I think ABC lost the telecast or something, and Fox picked it up, and she lost um, the job. And so she started throwing an Oscar party oh, every year and she passed away a couple years ago. And so we've continued that. So we're not really huge movie buffs. We have this sort of legacy Oscar party. Um, and there's voting that goes on. And oh, it's Helga's catering it. So huge, huge dollars amazing. change. Hands. Huge. Yeah. <laughs> Any of you tax assessors out there? Don't listen. Right. <laughs> big, big money. Um, it always runs too long. We always complain about yeah. the host and yep. so on. So Good. we'll see this year with no host and they promise Let's it won't be as it long. Goes. Good. Well, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to reach out to us, it's serialmoms at gmail.com. Serialmomspodcast, maybe, at gmail.com. Anyway, you'll find us on Facebook and uh, SoundCloud. Uh, So we will have you back when Sam can join us because I think you two would have a great conversation that I will then mediate or moderate. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but referee. Thank you for, referee is even better. So thanks for your time and come back soon. A lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Everyone have a great weekend.